Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to artists about their favorite albums. Today, we're talking with David Mitchell of the band Golfer. We talked about Coheed and Cambria's debut album, Second Stage, Turbine Blade, and the mythology behind the Armory Wars, along with a bunch of other things. So, Golfer recently released a split with Charmer, as well as their self-titled 2020 album on Top Shelf Records. Please check out our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. Check out our new weekly Patreon exclusive with my co-host Sarah Blumenthal. We're doing short, exclusive episodes every week where we dive into albums we liked when we were younger. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Please tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Okay, let's chat with my friend David Mitchell. Hey David, how's it going? I'm doing great. I uh, I'm feeling good today. Um, the crazy 6 a.m. construction I was telling you about um, outside of my apartment did not happen this morning. So, got to sleep. Uh, didn't have some 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 dudes yelling um, and whistling. This one one dude was whistling really hard yesterday. That was driving mm. me crazy. So, slept well. Uh, feeling good. Um, yeah, can't complain. How are you? Uh, pretty good. Actually, I was thinking about the kind of construction thing. Um, so I went to the beach for a week and they were like rebuilding a house next to us. Mm. So every yeah, morning at like 8 a.m. on our vacation. 8 a.m. Uh, that's luxurious. Yeah. I was dealing with a 6 a.m. situation. Uh, I don't know how they... <laughs> yeah. Is that just uh, do construction sites tend to start earlier in Canada as a whole? Or is it just that one know. to annoy you? No, I think it's like pretty consistently been like in the six to seven a.m. range whenever I've been punished with one, and then they'll they'll end like really early. Oh. Um, they'll end at like one or, wow. or noon even. I don't know. Hmm. It seems like a pretty like it's a they were totally rebuilding a house, but the house itself is rebuilt. It seems like they were just sort of like doing some concrete related work. So it seemed like <laughs> sort of maybe like they're done. They might just be done. It might have just been a four day job. So, huh. well. Lucky Grateful. You. Saturday tomorrow, the home stretch, you know? Oh, they'll probably be back tomorrow. Watch it. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. We're golfers filming a music video, so I got um, 9 a.m. I got to be somewhere at 9 a.m. the next two days anyway. So, mm. beautiful. Well, we are not here to talk about construction. Uh, we are here to talk about Coheed and Cambria's first album, Second Stage Turbine Blade, that came out in 2002 on Equal Vision Records. Um, so do you remember the first time you heard either this band or this album? Uh, the, the record is harder to zone in on just because of that era of like Kazaa, LimeWire, music videos. You know, it was definitely one of, those, one of those eras or that era where like I was coming to songs from, you know, music videos on TV or, or whatever it was. And I think I only probably got the record itself months and months later, but um, it, it probably was uh, either the Devil in Jersey City track, which is like the single from this record, or maybe it was the Favorite House Atlantic, which was like the single from the next record. Mm -hmm. um, but it must have just been like 
a music video somewhere or maybe I was like reading alt press and like something about that band caught my eye. I wish I remembered like the first, maybe it was like a friend that introduced me. Yeah. But this is like pretty ancient history. This is like early to mid 2004. I was 13 years old. So I don't, I don't have like the greatest, like the band that took over for Coheed um, as my favorite band of all time to this day, Seeger Rose. Like I can tell you who told me about them in science class. Like the first song I listened to, like I can probably tell you the month, mm-hmm. but Coheed is just like such ancient history to me. Um, that I, I I only wish I could I could give you like a, a zoned in, you know the way Pat Flynn heard embrace in that car. You know I wish I can give you that. But yeah, uh, do you think that if okay? So I know we're not talking about them today, but um, if you heard a Sigaro song and it just started, could you tell me like what song it is just from the jump? Oh, of course. <laughs> okay, which I feel like would be hard because it's like to me they sound kind of the same but you know um i mean uh, i can punish you with my super fan counterpoint as to why they don't and why every record every record has its own energy to it especially mm. like in the mid period like they have like a full-on twee pop record and so like yeah when you get deep enough i think you can you can make those distinct distinguishments i don't even know this word you can start distinguishing a little bit more like decisively but as a yeah. casual listener, I, I fully see why. Yeah. I mean, you could hard. probably almost say that, like, about anything. It's like... That's what I, how, that's what I was yeah. thinking. I didn't want to say it, but... <laughs> yeah. But it's like, how does one how does one that doesn't dive deep tell the difference between any hate breed record? For sure. Know? Yeah. So it's like... Absolutely. You know, or jazz. You, you got to be a deep head. Yeah. And, and, and do you feel like that. you're a deep head for Coheed and Cambria? Absolutely not even close. Um, and we, I'm sure we'll unpack that um, yeah. as we as we move forward here. But mm. um, I fell off very hard with this band. Okay. Um, yeah. And I don't know if you want to get into that now or later, but I think we'll ex- get. I think we'll get there. Uh, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, because well, my journey with this band uh, pretty much stopped and started with this record, and not for any good reason. It was just. Like, I had a friend that would, like, drive me to school or take me home from school, and he had it in his car, and it was, like, a burned copy, so I don't even know, like, what, like, I I guess we went to school together, I just, this is a guy I, like, hung out with for a while, and I remember specifically he had, like, a Trans Am, and he just had a lot of burned CDs, and so we'd put it on, and so I don't, I didn't know what the album art looked like or anything. I believe all of his CDs had that kind of sticker on it that made it look like a vinyl record, you know? Whoa. Like that. <laughs> That's kind of cool. I don't know if I've ever seen that yeah. before. So it would just say, you know, like Coheed on it or something, you know, and yeah. then just kind of listen to it without any context and just remembering like, who is this band? Like, what is, what is this? Like, it's like, is this like Rush influence? Like, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't know what's going on. Like I, I didn't dislike it at the time. It was just, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a big way to really find out like backstory on bands, you know, around this time. And that's something uh, hopefully we'll get into too, where it's like, is this rush? Is this Deftones? Is like, there are parts that sound like it could be like a strife or snapcase breakdown. Mm -hmm and on and on and on you know what i mean so i think that's 
one of the cool things about this record and like something that like comes up a lot when I listen to interviews with Claudio about this era of the band, you know, it's like so much is going on influence wise. And I think that's what makes it a cool record. You know, it's like, especially at that time, I think a lot of people were zoning in pretty hard on like one type of sound. And I think they captured like five different like pretty disparate influences and made them into something pretty unique. And I think that's what makes this record so special. Yeah. Yeah. They feel like a amalgamation of any kind of nerdy kid that goes to any of these type of shit, like Deftones or the nerdy kid at a Strife show or Snapcase show. It's like the same kid. They were just looking for this, right, you know, sure. and they, they just, they just kind of ball it up into one thing. Yeah. You know, that kind of takes all of your, like, I wish a band did a little bit of this and a little bit of this, and they go, and then, so Coheed gets all of those people, which are a lot of people. But, and it's like, uh, you didn't even yeah. know you were looking for it, but yeah. it's, it's there, you know? It's just like, maybe this fascinating amalgamation of all this stuff you're referring to in the 90s coming to, like, this sort of boiling point in the early 2000s and, and fusing into into this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there was even something, like, when I was listening to it, made me it made me want to re-listen to rush um and so i was listening to early rush and then i was thinking did something like super chunk were they influenced by rush even though that doesn't seem like a one-to-one you know like like how much influence i guess did rush have on a lot of these bands because i feel like i hear it a lot (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) um so so yeah i mean even getting into it it's like i had no idea as a kid anything about like the armory wars or anything like i i don't know and i don't know how i don't know how clear that was at that time yeah i think well and i i I, i'm curious when this mixed cd experience was for you if it was like in 2002 when that record dropped or if it was like a few years later as the band got popular because i don't think that armory wars stuff really existed from the jump either i think it was sort of like oh a few years passed they have a way bigger fan base um, and maybe like a budget to start, you know, rolling out a comic book line and, and all this kind of stuff. So yeah. if you were really in, in 02, 03, 04, it, I think it was kind of before it swelled into a place where there was maybe like a budget or a team to go beyond just like making records, you know, like I think sort of like the peak of my fandom was like 05, 06. And that's, I think mm-hmm. only when the, the, the comics started coming out. And, oh, okay. And I think maybe, you know, if you were a deep head on the uh, Cobalt and Calcium forum or, or whatever, maybe there were, there were sort of like fan theories about the Armory Wars and, and, the, and the, the saga and the, the narrative in the lyrics. But I think it only became like a formally advertised sort of commodity a few years after this record came out, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was probably almost like either in between or right around the time the second record came out that I would have uh, gotten into this. So I think it was like that friend probably discovering like both records at the same yeah. time. Which is um, kind of my I, experience I, yeah. too. Yeah, but I th- I think like it would have just been like a tiny bit before you, you know, just right. with our slight differences in age. Um, and so I, I had more of like the... I don't, I, yeah, I don't think if it was fleshed out in any sort of way, that was probably only known to Claudio. You know, it's like, yeah, I, yeah. I bet that there was like a, a spreadsheet or a piece of paper that explained like the complete idea. 
And so, you know, but when you listen to this record, um, I, you know, it's like, I feel like I'm getting more like emotions than kind of a story that's being built, you know? Well, I'll cop to, to this as like a super fan in the midst of, of my obsession in 0506. I barely even understood the story. Like it, it like, like I wanted to, and I, I bought the comics because I was just a super fan, but like, mm-hmm. That wasn't what gripped me, really. I I just I'm not a big lyrics person. Sort of I'm like after either. this era, I basically only listened to like instrumental music for the preceding like five or six years, whether that's dance music or or, or math rock or post rock or ambient music. Like I stopped listening to lyric music basically until I found Alex G. But that's another conversation. But yeah. um, so never been much of a lyrics person. Um, just loved the music and it just really spoke to like a lot of what I was looking for at the time. So yeah, I wonder if like even in early days, like there were probably people in the band who didn't fully wrap their head around like the narrative, you know? So yeah. I think being deep in the deep enough in the fandom at the time, you could tell that certain people were like obsessively trying to like theorize and, and sort of put pieces together of what they thought the story was. And then some people just love the riffs and, love like you said the emotion of it and and just the energy that it it gave off you know and that that's sort of where i would situate myself but you did pick up the comics yeah i had like a little little shrine in my room uh like whatever cds posters just whatever i can get my hands on and and an an obvious thing to get my hands on was was the comic book i don't even think i really even read it i just sort of put it up on my wall okay to be completely real with you like I've yeah. never been a comic book person to begin with, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, kind of the basic story that I can tell, and this will be as much as I really know, and it sounds like the both of us will know, but it's like <laughs> the Armory Wars. So this is part one of four of that storyline. And then, the, well, the second album is called like three. It has like the number three. Yeah, so then so I don't this know. This is the if... second stage Turbine Blade. So this is the second right and that's what that's what's so i guess they just skipped one yeah that's what i can't i can't speak to why that is but (laughs) um i know they had a band called shibuti before this but it's like a lot of the same songs um so maybe the shibuti demos are like stage one because there are a bunch of shibuti demos that didn't end up on this record but I don't even know if Claudia was writing from a narrative perspective at that time. I don't know. So this is Good like question. straight up like has like George Lucas vibes. Like it's like, oh, this is part oh, four. Yeah. You know, this is part <laughs> four and we'll flesh out the rest later. Uh, and then I think like LP6 just doesn't talk about the Armory Wars at all. It's like, or LP5 or something. It's just like Claudio decided it's, this is just not going to have anything to do with the story. But I think it, and I'm probably wrong here. Uh, I think it starts telling like another story within okay. that universe. So it's like it's you really could tie it to Star Wars, and that the the rumor now with the Star with, with the Star Wars um, with Star Wars is like they're gonna like tell a different story that's not connected to the Skywalker saga. So in the same way, it's like it exists in the same universe right, right. as Army Wars, but it doesn't tell a story that's connected to Coheed and Cambria, which is the husband and wife. Right. Um, so it's funny to name your band after characters in 
your story. Yeah. Like, I mean, um, I was listening to Claudio on Jeremy Bohm's podcast last night, just sort of like in a research driven frenzy of just getting ready for, for this. Uh-huh. And it was kind of like the first time in like almost 15 years that I've really even thought about this whole army world war situation and just like, Oh yeah. Like Cody Cambria are like based off his parents and like armory is like the street he grew up on and all this stuff that maybe I sort of like loosely knew as a kid. And yeah, I think it was almost just like a, a pragmatic thing of like, well, Shibuti is, is, is an objectively silly sounding band name and we're about to like sign to equal vision and, and, and go for it and do the thing. And coding Cambria was just like a name that everyone from management to the band to the label all seem to agree on. I think it was just like, we need a name. It's not Shibuti. We're rolling with Code in Cambria. I, I, I doubt Claudia was like, oh, three records from now, they may not be in the storyline anymore. We can't name our band that. I think it was more of just like, a, we need a band name. Everyone likes this. It, it, it fits with this record. It'll fit with the next record. And Yeah, I've, it's it's like if the band Sticks was like, oh, there's a character named Sticks, and all of the songs in our discography revolve around a story around that character. You know, like that's what it would be akin to like it's it's silly you know um but you know even like the idea of and i promise we'll be done talking about the key work and uh you know armory wars but like the key work just being like the thing called like the heaven's fence which is like 78 planets and seven stars when i started talking about the stuff just in this moment i was like this just sounds like a cult to me Mm. oh yeah so fan base is very cultish you know (laughs) yeah one among the fans. I really wanted a keyword tattoo when I was like 15. I, I I didn't get it, but like you know, like it's it's definitely a very cultish fan base for sure. Yeah. And like, I almost wonder, like like because I was saying before, I really fell off musically from this band. So for me, I didn't like the records anymore. That was the end of discussion. But I wonder if there were yeah. people who were almost like indoctrinated so hard into the storyline that like maybe they stopped liking the records, but like we're still invested in this narrative capacity. And I, I wonder mm-hmm. if like anyone sort of stuck around from more of like the science fiction fantasy arc than just liking the records from a musical standpoint. So you, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, Yeah, you know, they did. Like, yeah. hundred percent. It's so like, we're, we're, we're going strong with like people who are simultaneously hating on the new records, but like deeply invested in, whatever the new storyline or whatever the new arcs were narrative arcs were from those records like wouldn't surprise me at all yeah i'd be curious to know like how these comics sold if it, unless they were just like solely sold to coheed and cambria fans like do you need yeah. to be a fan of the band to understand the comic or even care about the comic or do people pick up the comic div- divorced completely from anything of the band great question because i i know that claudio did eventually start going to like comic cons and i think they started sort of trying to push it beyond the fan base and i wonder if it caught on my knowledge of that world is be like beyond limit like zero so i, I can't yeah. even speculate but i'd be curious to know for sure like if it <laughs> caught on you know yeah so i guess even just looking at this record outside of that just songs because it's like when listening to this record like 
I couldn't necessarily pick up on anything that told me kind of anything about these stories that I could glean. So it's like just another record to me. Yeah, Yeah. and I feel the same way too. After like 17 years of pretty deep listening, like I can't really give you any kind of what's going on, who's who Mm -hmm. to this day. So Yeah, and just to give a little kind of backstory so when when you proposed a few records to me um it was like usually what i do is like i feel like i'll naturally pick something and then i'll go well i should pick this because it's not the one i would naturally pick mm-hmm. and so coheed and cambria was the one that i felt like i wouldn't naturally pick right and so going into it i felt like though i knew i was going to pick it i felt like i uh, honestly and i'm airing it here almost like held a grudge uh, on you for for picking this as one of your things um, and then felt like I was like I don't want to but what I really had that I was bringing into it was essentially the whole storyline and the whole fandom right. and really and this is what I wanted to get to was I wanted to kind of appreciate this record for what it was at the time like bring it into like what it must have felt like in 2002 hearing this you know and so with that, I don't think it's like a bad record at all. Like it, it's, but it's it's really hard to divorce it from the overall fandom of Coheed and Cambria. For sure. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And <laughs> as someone who who fell off in like a, like they put a record in '07, No World for Tomorrow, that is like an offensively bad record. Like, and and. So I, for me, it wasn't even like trying to divorce myself from the fandom or anything. It was just like every record was like, I like this less and less, but there are still redeeming moments. And then they put out a record that just had no redeeming moments for me. And and it was also like at a time where like my musical taste was shifting pretty dramatically. So it was like, okay, like they're going in a, in this sort of like, Def Leppard direction and I'm going and I just want to listen to explosions in the sky like this this is this isn't this isn't working anymore you know but I guess what I'm trying to say is that like I went to the deepest depths of where I could go with this band mm-hmm. b- before falling off you know whereas maybe you dipped in and out and then we're looking maybe from the outside looking in whereas like I pu- I feel like I put in my work you know and and I I really like stood by the band to the point where like it just wasn't happening for me anymore so i think maybe those different perspectives or those different sort of contexts maybe speak to why we see it from a different perspective but i will also say that between 2007 and 2014 i did not listen to this band i didn't listen to this record like i was like this is just i just categorized it all as like music from my childhood and you know, yeah. you go through that like late teens, early twenties stage of like, this is my adult taste in music, you know? And so it wasn't until like years later that I revisited this record. I was like, okay, this is a great record. And then revisited in Keeping Secrets. And I'm like, yeah, this is a pretty good record. And then even um, Good Apollo 4, the third record, um, I like a lot of, of that record now. But last night for the first time since 07, I, I listened to the, the fourth record, No World for Tomorrow. I was like, this fucking blows. <laughs> every yeah. song is bad yeah. like you know there there are records that i've i've revisited like fucking chiotos and from first to last and stuff that like 
at 21, I would have, I would have said, I, w- I will never listen to that again. It's garbage music from my childhood, you know, that I think are fantastic records. Um, but yeah, I, that Coed record, like, didn't like it then, didn't like it last night. And I don't know. Have you revisited, like, Number 12 Looks Like You? That I never got into them in the first okay. place. <laughs> I just so feel like they're another... of that era. Yeah, like, uh, the first Fall of Troy record, the first two Circus Survive records, um, you know, like, I had this sort of, like, period in 2014 where I was, like, getting back into Alexis on Fire, getting, like, you know, just, but it, it was the type of thing where it's like, I had to have loved that. There's not really any bands, with the exception of, funnily enough, Sleeping With Sirens' first record, and maybe a few others, Dance Gavin Dance, there's a very few exceptions, but from that era, it's like has to be something that I listened to in that era. Like I stand by the first okay. Atreyu record, even though it's like pretty objectively bad because I loved it when I was 14, right? But there's no way at 30 years old, I'm going to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to listen to the first Atreyu record for the first time and like think it's good. Somehow that happened to me with Dance Game and Dad's Sleep with the Sirens. That just might be like, I love the high-pitched Circa Chiodos, whatever sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I heard great things about number 12, that whole kind of like, I don't even know if that fits into like, kind of like the sassy, heavy, heavy, low, low, uh, like fear before type of scene. I, I, I A lot of that, like, it was just like, you were lucky if you found a song on LimeWire or like the video was playing or like you got a sampler at Warp Tour with that band song in it. Like, I, it wasn't just, it wasn't a time that I felt was, really facilitated to like discovering stuff the way it is now obviously you know so a lot just slipped me by and then in 07 I just had this radical shift to like only wanting to listen to post-rock and 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 dance music from England and so I missed out on a lot of stuff and I don't I don't know I'll give number 12 a shot though for sure it's definitely like on my long list of like stuff to dig back on but yeah I felt like in my head like I definitely uh some reason paired them i think it was just uh chiodos and number 12 looks like you i think it was just the time frame that i you know got into both yeah. albums but it is funny that you mentioned atreyu because uh i wrote down because i was trying to think like where i was musically around this time frame and it was like the first event sevenfold record sure atreyu sure. and yeah and this right, right right well for me it was like it was like skate punk and ska was everything right like big epifat guy big third wave ska guy um and then like and then like everyone in the city heard q without the e by taking back sunday and like stop like stop listening to skate punk and ska like it was like an overnight thing and that was kind of around that was like the summer that i first heard coheed and first heard you know whatever like taking back sunday brand new whatever it was and so it was like this really interesting shift in, in the city that summer where it was like everyone went from loving whatever, like no effects and the Planet Smashers and Mustard Plug to like, oh, we, we all love Atreyu and, and, and Coding Cambria and, and all, that, all that stuff. And so, yeah, like that's kind of where I was. I, I found Coheed when I was like doing a very radical shift in how I identified and like what I was into and what was relevant you know what's funny to think about is like i don't know if this is the case for you but when i think about those kind of like identifying time frames like when i felt like i was like epifat kind of kid um it might it feels like looking back it might have been six months 
Yeah, but yeah. it was such a, such a big part of your identity. And, oh, for sure. you know, it was like, how long was I listening? I mean, it felt like years that I was listening and just singing along in my room to like every no effects record. Like, right. you know, like at to this day, like I feel like if if someone put on no effects so long and thanks for all the shoes, I know every word. Oh, that's word. the best no effects record. It is. I think it's the best one. That's like, the best no effects down. record. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, but I feel like I could just start singing like every word and still yeah. know it. Like I don't even, I can't even remember my own lyrics, and you know, but somehow I can remember all of these. But I don't, I don't feel like people, for probably, for obvious reasons, like people don't really talk about no effects like that anymore. But I think you know they just kind of, I I don't know that that's complicated to get into. But I don't know. It seems like it comes up a fair amount on your podcast. Well, because of me, but no, but um, like Oceanator, like I, there's certain mm. people who are like, oh my god, this this person came up on on Epifat, like you know, it's, I think it's to your point, like more pervasive than we might perceive, mm-hmm. because maybe people are reluctant to. Yeah, I think that's admit it, and like really no effects is aged really poorly, and like um, that whole scene is aged very poorly. Yeah, they're the, like, like Vegas, Vegas shooter. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah, I mean, I think probably there's just a bunch of like hidden no effects fans out yeah. there. So if you are like, one, it's safe. If you tell yeah. me you're a no effects fan, that you know you you can you'll be safe. And there are yeah. also like there are like legit ways to like be like oh bad religion like I love that band and they're they're like pretty legit band you know like Brian Baker's in that band and like yeah like I think it's like pretty like acceptable be like oh yeah i love like streetlight manifesto and like catch 22 like i think there are ways to like subtly especially with like the ska revival now yeah. and stuff like i think there are ways to like subtly be like oh yeah like you know like uh skank and pickle mike park you know like there are like cloudy ways to like be like oh that was me once, yeah you know for me i don't care like i'll tell you that i i love like big d in the kids table like i'll, I'll cop to like loving corny bands you know i'm not in it for the cloud of like oh i was like a legit skate punk fan you know i was like 12 i was just yeah. happy to listen to anything with a d beat basically yeah you know? yeah but it was it did feel similarly like overnight it was like we were into epifat stuff and then it was a trade <laughs> really fascinating it was the summer yeah. of 2004 and it's just like i remember it vividly it was just like it just changed everyone's look changed uh-huh. Like, you know, the aesthetic overnight, it's like went from checkered bullshit and studded belts to like the, the proto early scene look, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's a fascinating thing to think about, you know? And then yeah. three years later, all those scene kids became like club kids. And then you can just map this like fascinating progression of like trends and cultures, at least in the city, you know? And, yeah. I think it's probably so. Did you grow up in Montreal? I did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where where I grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, it's like Charlotte bands, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina bands would come to Wilmington, and I felt like I could sense the fashion changes. Right. But right, we right. were we were like behind. City. Yeah, and there might be right. like a super cool kid that like was on message boards that dressed the way people did in Charlotte, but it's like right, right. you know I still wore like you know rustlers or whatever kind of walmart brand of you know and then you know so i wasn't completely in on like the tight pants and then when i i I feel like i still do that with like fashion changes it's like Mm -hmm. oh i'll I'll get there eventually but you know uh which maybe is a good thing (laughs) i feel really grateful that i never went full scene yeah with the hair and all that stuff you know what i mean like in the moment like 
it's all I wanted. But in, in a way, retrospectively, like, okay, like I, I flirted with it and went fairly deep musically, but I never went full aesthetic, which is maybe not the worst thing in the world, you know? No, I think though, once I appreciate that about myself when I'm thinking about it as a whole, because I feel like I'm into much more bigger things. And I don't say that as like, oh, I'm into a lot of different stuff, but it's like, I feel like it's like, I can't full, I could never like fully identify, let's say like as just like a metalcore kid or something or you know it's like i i felt like i i always like exist between scenes and that's where i feel most comfortable but then sometimes you feel uncomfortable because you don't just live completely in one place oh that, like you you were speaking to something i think about like on <laughs> such a unhealthily consistent basis yeah and, but like to even like bring it back to like that era I was I was listening to like Block Party as much as I was listening to Hawthorne Heights as much as I was listening to Mogwai in 2005 like as much as I was listening to Boards of Canada as much as I was you know what I mean like so as as much as I did zone in pretty hard on on that particular trend I was still pretty diverse in what I was into Sofiane Beirut like whatever there was a whole spectrum of stuff at that time and so yeah I feel that too where it was like I've never been able to just like, I am this, you know? Um, and I think, I think as alienating as it can be, um, I think it speaks to, uh, oddly enough, having a lot of character and individuality and, and, and just doing you and not just doing the copping out to what's easy just to fit in, you know? Yeah. A lot of people do conveniently get trapped in, which good for them if that works for you. I think it probably makes your life a lot easier, but I've never been that person. I've always sort of tried to march the beat of my own drum, which is a lot of benefits and a lot of detriments. And it is what it is, you know? Yeah. But I think those like, and this is what should make me more of a Coheed fan uh, is I think that those type of kids become Coheed fans. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know, because they don't, they don't completely, they either just don't exist completely in like one thing or they just don't want to exist in one thing. It's like misfits for lack of a better term, but you know, I, I think that's kind of those type of bands like draw those kind of kids in and there's parallels to them that wouldn't sonically sound like parallels. It's just, you know, like bands that tend to have a wide swath of people, but you're like, there's no one identifying thing. You know, while I feel like when you look into, I guess, like modern day, like DIY culture, it's like there seems to be a lot of people kind of one group thing. And, you know, that's, that's fine, you know, but it but it feels like they're all kind of like in on the same thing. And what I'm getting to is like it, the type of person like uh, when I was younger, it was like American Nightmare. Like, you felt like there were a lot of kids, and it's funny to compare Coheed and American Nightmare, but um, it's, so there were a lot of kids that, that felt like they had only gotten into hardcore because of American Nightmare and didn't listen to anything before and potentially sometimes after. Um, and that's, like, a weird phenomenon to me. Like, I just didn't feel like I wanted to live in, like, one place. Uh, so I'm right. kind of repeating myself again. Well, I think you bring up an interesting point that, I thought about maybe abstractly, but never this deeply where it's like, maybe people weren't seeing kids, but they were just, they built their identity around being Coheed fans. And it yeah. wasn't about just like 
being a scene kid, it was like, I love this band and, and I'm going to, and I, I, I feel a similar way about Circus Survive where like people just like build their identity about around like being a fan of that band mm-hmm. and not being like a fan of a genre. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty interesting phenomenon. Cause like, I don't think it had, like, I don't think there are that many fandoms that are just like built around one band. And I think that's pretty powerful. You know, like you'll still see people on Twitter with like the Circus Survive logo like in their name. And it comes up like way more frequently than you'd suspect, you know? And I guess I wouldn't even know to identify it. Like I, I feel like off the top of my head, I don't know what the Circus Survive logo is. So yeah. they're, they're among us and you recognize it and I don't. I do. Yeah. I do. <laughs> I, I, I love, I'm a big Anthony Green guy. I, uh, I actually really like the 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 two newer circuit records that came out mm-hmm. like this past decade and that first Sayosin record and then the Sayosin reunion record is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, love that, love that stuff. What's funny is like, did you ever like Thrice? No. See, I was talking to my friend about this the other day. I know "Stare at the Sun" and "Artist in the Ambulance," and those yeah. are the two Thrice songs I know. Um, that's it. Never listened to Vesu. Never listened to anything after that. Um, yeah, really never got into Thrice. They, because it feels like when they went into like Vesu era, um, they it's like they did their own version of Coheed in a way, for sure. And like <laughs> they still to this day, like starting like twelve years ago, like taking Moving Mountains and Oh Brother out, and and even like even taking a lot of speed out and like Oh Nine is pretty cool to me, and like um, taking like Holy Fawn out, and like that band really like vouches for a lot of bands that contemporarily i really love and like kind of leaned into almost like associating themselves with like post-rock in a weird way which is like a yeah. genre i really love but yeah no i never really got into thrice and like weird random side note but like that whole world of music like died hard in this city like like those bands basically all skipped the market but thrice does so well in montreal and i i can't explain it but like that band will do like 2000 cap rooms and all these other bands we're talking about like don't even play here because it's like at best half of what they'll play in a similarly sized American sort of market or whatever. But yeah, Thrice like is deeply loved in in Montreal, and I I, don't, I can't figure it out. But I have deep respect to them for putting on for like really cool bands and taking out really cool openers and all that kind of stuff. But never really got into the, their music. Yeah, they seemed at a point I guess around Vesu that they just we're like on their own trip. It's like, we already did artists in the ambulance. So we're right. just going to do exactly what we want, you know? And so, I mean, that's really cool. Um, I mean, and even in the same way to tie it back to Coheed, it just seems to be, I mean, they're totally just like on their own thing, but I, yeah. I say that without having listened to those records that I guess you fell off on. It's just know? like classic rock. Like they really lean into the rush mm-hmm. and like sort of like listening to that, Jeremy Bohm Claudio interview yesterday, like and t- hearing about Claudio, like reference like Cinderella and just, like a lot of hair metal and like I I I I understood the record that I was listening to last night more. Like okay, like this is just like his childhood coming out the same way. Maybe uh, my uh, obsession with like crust and D beat is informed by listening to a lot of skate punk as a kid, you know, and like maybe some people who never had a skate punk phase would listen to a martyr dot record or a disfear record and be like, this is unlistenable garbage, but I have this connection from my youth. Whereas maybe he has this like sort of classic rock hair, hair metal connection from his youth that's seeping into his, his adult songwriting, whatever. 
that I don't get because I never had that as a kid. I never, that was never in my life, you know? So, but, so I, I guess I understand more like the trajectory of like that sort of like guitar, capital G guitar music and like hair metal stuff is so ingrained in, in him as a young person and informs, you know, the records that he'd, he'd make later on. But I, I yeah, I, I never had that face, so I can't, it's harder for me to identify with it or whatever. Yeah, so if you feel like you strip down, like, who do you, when you're in the van with, let's say, Golfer, or you're just, like, in a car by yourself, like, where do you think you naturally would go to when you pick music? Well, half of Golfer hates, like, Coheed-type shit. Okay. Um. So, yeah, that, like... And I don't drive. I've never had a driver's license. Montreal is very, very much like a public transit city. So I'm actually very rarely in vehicles. Okay. Um, so, and whenever I am, like someone else is driving. So they get to pick the music. I, or if I'm picking the music, I'm really trying to suss out their vibe and their energy and like what maybe what the mood of the drive is. And like maybe if, if golfers on, on, on the road, I'll play a song that I know the others who will hate, but like the, that our drummer loves and we'll have our moment with like post hardcore for a second. And then it's sort of like back to Alex G worship singer songwriter shit, you know, or like I'll, 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 I'll please Julian with some like weird drum and bass, but I know the others who hate it. So I'll put like a track on and then maybe I'll pass the ox along to someone else and take that pressure off and then I'll get the ox back and maybe try and do like a, maybe an Algernon, maybe like something that I know everyone can get on board with and crowd please. And then, you know, pick my battles like um, with, with the stuff that I know the other two aren't, aren't like super into these days. And yeah, like try and have my cake and eat it too. Like maybe throw in something that maybe they don't like and then try and please the crowd on, on the next selection, you know? Yeah. So you're very like giving DJ on the road. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love, I love that. I love reading rooms. Um, but I also love throwing curveballs in. It's I think it's all about the balance for me. Um, yeah. Taking t- taking those risks with with something a little bit more left field and like seeing how it lands, you know. Mm. Like experimental dance hall landed really well with golfer when I wasn't expecting it to. So, yeah. You, know, you got to shoot your shot sometimes. You know? Yeah. Um, so I guess like just so that we go through all the tracks, you know, in some sort of fashion. Um, I feel like just starting with track one, um, I, you know, it was interesting to me kind of start, starting with that kind of sound that builds up and then it the just band, goes into the band loves yeah. an intro. This band, like, yeah. as you go on in the discography, even by LP three, it's like an intro into what I really see as like intro B. Like, yeah. it's like, it's yeah. like intro A the way it is on second stage where it's kind of just like this creepy weird sort of almost ambient yeah it's like thing. Da, 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 da. <laughs> right so like by the time you get to lp3 it's like there's two minutes of that and then there's two and a half minutes of like this kind of like big intro energy like acoustic song and this is all building into like the six and a half minute welcome home saga you know what i mean so i think like that big intro energy has always been there but like they just built up to like being able to sort of pull it off the way they wanted it to. But like, you can tell from this intro that like, this is going to be a staple of the discography, you know, the same way, like they, by LP2 started like having this kind of like prog rock 
trilogy or, or beyond and that started to become a, sta- a staple as, as the discography goes forward like you can tell that like the the beginning stages of like tropes within their discography developing on this record and i think this this intro is a great example of that yeah like i since i hadn't listened to it in such a long time like uh, when that first intro happens i'm like oh it's gonna like kick into like you know full on and then it goes into like the other intro and i was like oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that you know it kind of builds just kind of regular song kind of thing and it really you could almost say like time consumer is you know like the first full-on track for this sure. record yeah um and yeah like and then i guess like you said like devil in jersey city was the single for kind it so like the only real single i think that got traction as far as like a video goes and stuff like Maybe Everything Evil was like a single, but I feel like Devil in Jersey City was like the one that got probably like a bit of Fuse and about a bit of MTV too or whatever. I don't know. I'm not American, but like what I suspect was the only one that maybe made it beyond people who were like just listening to the record. I could be wrong on that, but it yeah. feels like it feels like the pop song on the record. When I know. just searched uh, Coheed and Cambria on YouTube, uh, mainly all the music videos and all the just things that naturally pop up were a lot of like second record stuff. So, right. you know, I, I wonder, and I don't know if you have context to this, like how was this record received and, or is it just one of those things they got so big that it sort of retroactively became like a popular record? Yeah. I think from like a commercial standpoint, I don't think it did anything really. Like I think to what we were discussing before, I think a lot of people, yourself and myself included, kind of came to the band as that second record was coming out and like were like a, you know, a year or two late on second stage and kind of like discovered them simultaneously. You know what I mean? Um but I, I will say that like Favorite House Atlantic and Blood Red Summer, the two singles on Keeping Secrets, the second record got way more airplay and like the, I started seeing those even on the Canadian what we call much music and, and the Quebecois music plus like started seeing those on like let's say our not head headbangers ball but like our version of like we had a thing called the punk show or or one two three punk in French or you know these sort of like alternative half an hour a week where you hear you know deftones whatever it is you know so like those started to get a lot, a lot more traction than anything on this record got. And then I think it was like, well, people fell so hard for that record that they just went back to this record. And I think a lot of people kind of like experienced them both kind of at the same time. Um, but yeah, I think this was more of like a grandfathered in classic than like an instant classic. So one thing I, to note about like Time Consumer that I saw is that Dr. No from Bad Brains, Bad Brains played yeah. guitar on it. And I was you like- know that story at all? No, I don't. So um, they were just hanging out in a bar. I They're from like, so I'm not super great at this geography, but it's like the beginning of the Hudson Valley, like Poughkeepsie, Nyack, like just north of the city zone. That's and right. from what I understand, they're just hanging out at a bar while tracking this record. And Dr. No was at the bar just like hanging out, but they had no idea it was him. They were just like shooting the shit with this guy and he, and he was like, "Oh, I'm a guitarist." Like, um, they're like, "Oh, cool." 
um and then i guess they got to really talking and found out who he was and like the next day like invited him over to like rip a guitar solo it's just like the crazy story like it's not like they were like we called dr no and and arranged this it was like we were just at this bar yeah not expecting to meet the dude from the bad brains mm-hmm. and it, it was like very accidental serendipitous coincidental and i, I just love the story I love, yeah I, yeah i mean it feels like that would be exactly the situation where any of us would get dr no on a record like it's right, like right. it's like i'm a bad brains fan but you know especially at this point it's like i wouldn't necessarily recognize tim in the wild anywhere sure. you know and you know i'm i go pretty deep in their catalog but it's just like it would never be like let's get dr no on this record mm-hmm. like that's mm-hmm. not you know so so it's funny that it's like yeah but if he was there i'd be like yeah just tread whatever please play on this record like you know but that it's that's so funny that it's just random yeah it's a great story and i like not that bad brains are really remotely in the era of like equal vision as a hardcore label but i i think it's kind of an interesting sort of tie-in that up until maybe like the year before equal vision was exclusively releasing like I don't know, Bane records or whatever. Yeah. Or even beyond that into like the Ray Capo era. I don't know too much about that. Deep yeah. Like even when you get into like the kind of Krishna consciousness kind of right. hardcore era with, yeah. With, so it is you know, kind of, you yeah. know, an, an interesting tie in, in, in a, in a really whatever way that like, this was kind of the beginning of the end of equal vision being a hardcore label, but there was this through line accidentally with like Dr. No being on the record or whatever. I think that's kind of yeah. cool. Yeah. It's funny though, when you start thinking about like time and those situations, because it's like that was 2002 and then, you know, bad brains were still putting out like very solid records, uh, less than like 15 years before. Right. Um, and then even the whole like nineties, like soul brains era. So it's like, they're still relevant to a lot of people. Sure. around that time it's like it's like even just with looking at the research of your own band it's similar to my band it's like golfer started in 2011 and so just like how long of a period you know that's been relatively to the history of dr no to cohesion sure. cambria like it's like the, yeah. about the same amount of time right you know yeah <laughs> like i don't i don't feel like we like like when i think about things like oh, 20 years ago, we still do that thing where it's like, I think about it being 1990. Right. You know, For that sure. kind of phenomenon. 100%. Uh, yeah, so it's like time is strange. I, I wonder if they were like, felt like they were contemporaries in a sense, like, or the generation before, or if that was like, this happened a million years ago to uh, yeah. them. Yeah. I don't know. That's a great yeah. uh, So I guess like if you have like other kind of notes about, you know, the rest of the track listing well the one thing i was marinating on was the question that you might be about to bring up which is what song would you eliminate from the record um because yeah like like i i i don't i don't have much to say I, I love the record i think it's it's flawless front to back so for me like i don't have a note where it's like oh well track seven is kind of whatever like to me it's just it's 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 all perfect. So I think the question that I was grappling with more was like, what would I eliminate, you know? And um, the way I broke it down is that like, 
there's there are songs which i think most of the record is where it steers more to like the prog end and then there are songs which maybe they're the catalog that precedes this record went more towards which is like the pop end and then thank god there's no ballads on this record because they went deep in the ballad territory and i can't really handle that but so i i see this record split mostly into the prog zone and then i see two let's call them pop punk adjacent tracks are devil uh devil in jersey city and 33 and so it's like i'm here more for the the prog so i'm not going to get rid of any of those tracks and 33 is like one of my favorite Coheed songs. So I'm going to have to let go of Devil in Jersey City. I think it's just one of those things that's symptomatic of having been maybe overexposed to the song. And it's just sort of like, it's the song that I'd be most fine with never hearing again, just because I've heard it so much. And maybe in that era I was referring to earlier where like, maybe I didn't have a physical copy of the record yet and was just sort of relying on like, streaming it on their pure volume whatever and maybe like the whole record wasn't up on the pure volume and i just like listened to devil in Jersey city you know um to death so to speak it, it just feels like the most disposable track on that record to me where it's like the rest of the, the rest of that record especially maybe because i spent six seven years away from it like still feels very fresh to me whereas like i'd be fine with sort of skipping over devil in Jersey city if if it came down to it so yeah yeah i really tried because it's i mean it's an exercise to do for every episode um but like overall it's like i would say i'm not like a big fan of coheed like i you know it's maybe obvious from what i've said but i still looking thinking of that it's like i can't think of a song that just doesn't fit in a way on this record like i think the only part that i would cut just because I feel like I've aged out of it, it's just like the beginning of a song. Like, so I I think that the beginning of Here Shot Kid Disaster is like pretty annoying in, in retrospect. You know, like the kind of like the the scream on it, like mm. the Brie kind of uh, pre. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I, I could do without that, but right, right, I right. wouldn't cut the song because of it. Sure, sure, sure. You know, so, so I can't even like answer the own question because... You know, I think where I felt that, and I've done this on a, well, on, it's not out yet, so I'll probably edit this out. Uh, but the only things I felt like I would have cut were like the extra tracks that are on it for streaming. But that doesn't really count in terms of the original album. Yeah, like to me, El Power New Mexico has kind of been grandfathered into the record just because the way I've been listening to it since 2014. I guess I've just been listening to the reissue, whatever. So like, I, I like that song. And so I'm not mad when it comes on. So I just treat it as like, it's the last, it's just now the last song on the record to me. Um, and then like, yeah, I can do without like the, I think there's like an acoustic June song provision. Like I, that, that, that I could do without, but I think like, like that bonus track um, is, is, is a great song. And I'm, I'm happy that they decided to, put it out you know i think it, it, it i think it was a song that was like accessible at the time but now it's kind of like with spotify and with reissues and stuff it's just like it's sort of like i said grandfathered into the track listing whatever but i'm not i'm not upset at that, at that track i think it's a, i think it's a good song i think it holds its own i mean i i love the shibuti demo so i may be the wrong person to ask on, on that but um 
like I celebrate some like really almost like you not celebrate but like I still enjoy songs that like oof lyrically are a little bit sketchy and then it's like a whole thing where it's like oh but it's 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 a it's a narrative and it's a story and it's not Claudio calling someone a problematic word it's like the the narrator or whatever that you that get you get in a whole other dicey territory there yeah but. yeah i i feel like i listened to uh i listened to the podcast your favorite band sucks for uh um, okay they, they did coheed and they brought that up um and so i feel like i didn't try and approach it from that standpoint because i feel like it's i feel like i tried to think about it given the time frame you know, given that it was 2002. Uh, oh, I mean, even uh, most of these songs were probably written like 99, 2000. Yeah. yeah. So it's not to say that it's not, uh, of course, in 2021 standards, like there's those parts of the record, like don't hold up. Um, but it's like to kind of meet the whole experience with kind of meeting it where it was, that wasn't, that wasn't like a frowned upon notion at that time. Right. And what I usually feel like I have a problem with is like in if in 2021 standards someone uses it as a reference to why they can do it Mm. then that's stupid and also if a band feels like they haven't they socially haven't progressed past that point then it sort of shines a light on that and i know nothing about anyone in coheed but i've heard nothing to say that they aren't like kind of socially different you know yeah and I i i think there is something to be said about like uh the difference between like a fuck my ex-girlfriend she's such a whatever versus this character in a science fiction story is is saying this like it's not like it's not claudio being like i hate women it's but maybe that maybe that was what he was trying to communicate so i don't know if i'm digging myself into a hole here no i think it's it's i think anytime that someone kind of has that notion of writing they should reflect and kind of think about why they wrote it and i think a lot of times people do use a character as a way to you know get something like that out that they you know absolve like the personal implication but yeah it's like oh i I wasn't saying that it was it was johnny the from the key work that was saying it or whatever like yeah and then yeah like using that as like a cheap sort of excuse to like justify problematic language or or whatever or, or yeah so it's dicey it's dicey for sure yeah. and, and but i also i will say that like there's stuff that didn't make this record that's worse so maybe <laughs> claudio did have like a reflective moment of like okay i'm, I'm not gonna like say words from a certain song but the, like there's there's a shibuti demo that like is beyond what's problematic on this record lyrically and maybe he was like ah this is just just this is sketchy and bad and i don't stand by it and yeah and, I, and hopefully as the discography progresses he became more self like more self-realized and, and and sorted his shit out and sort of fig- figured out that maybe it wasn't a great look and yeah i just haven't i haven't heard that as like an ongoing issue with no, them I, like I you know i don't i've heard that as a reflection of like essentially this era and then right. nothing else and but i do think that they do need to uh you know answer for the fact that they covered jesse's girl 
and like two uh, years ago <laughs> and yeah they they have a lot of answering to do for that but it also features rick springfield yeah so you know i have no other comment about it you gotta check <laughs> out their um sister christian cover oh man i didn't know they had that I, well, well, that's actually, from 20 years ago that's from 20 years ago yeah, yeah, yeah okay one of the things that actually when we're on on the road uh usually usually to, to kind of go back to that point like we'll put on like tom petty because it's like the easiest thing to put on um and then we all agree on it but a lot of times like we will put on like kind of 80s kind of hair band kind of stuff um and that's like something everyone kind of seems to just be fine with um so so with that said like i felt like when you were talking about that earlier um I don't I, I just don't understand like why I'm not a bigger Coheed fan. Like I feel like I like all the touchstones that they like. Right. But I just don't I it, it's you know uh, I have like another example for it too is like like I like a lot of like older blues rock kind of stuff um uh, like 70s rock and stuff. But if I hear someone do kind of like that blues scale in a song Mm, and like i don't i'm just like get this band off the stage like but i'll just like listen to whatever kind of did that and like like zz top or something and i'm like yes you know but yeah give a modern band to do the same exact thing i'm like fuck this you know but that modern band is not fusing blues riffs with like victory records breakdown parts and deftones vibes and you know what i mean like I think that's what sells Coheed to me. If, if Coheed was just like a 2002 version of Rush meets Cinderella, then I would, I would have zero interest, you know? But I think for me, it's like all the other elements that come into play, which is interesting that you bring that up because I never really had a hair metal phase and I don't even really like classic rock, you know? So it's like almost weird that I like Coheed and you don't. Yeah. But I, I also think it's like circumstantial and, and just... I don't know, I maybe just heard them at the right time. I think or... I think that's really like the main thing. Like there was yeah. there was an easy timeline that I could have just stayed on that train. Like if right. my friend had the other CD burned or gave it to me, then right. I would right. it would be we'd both be huge coheed heads, you know. Right. Me even more than you. Cuz I probably would have stayed on the whole you trip cuz probably liked the newer records more than I did. Yeah, I'm assuming that production wise, I there's probably certain things i wouldn't like but when you just it tell me that they brighter. go yeah i don't i don't yeah i don't think i can get behind that but full, like full columbia records yeah uh like sonically though when you just tell me like it's like ballads or like more rock i'm like yeah okay <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. But, like yeah it definitely gets a lot more capital r rock and a lot of ballads and a lot of guitar solos and a lot of big old choruses that i can't stand and all that kind of yeah yeah well i guess like so kind of ending with track 10 then i feel like godsend conspirator is like such a good track to end on so that's also what kind of makes it feel like when i hear the extra tracks Mm. it's just kind of repetition at the point i mean since they are different versions um so to kind of tie a button on that, you know, it's or tie a ribbon, I guess I should say. Um, I I can't think of anything to cut. Like you know, like it's it feels like if you're meeting the album where what they were trying to accomplish, I think it's a perfect album in that way. Yeah, I think that like because there is a lot of that Shibuti material that was probably sort of like 
from what I understand, like, like this record was just sort of born out of like a, a bunch of demoing, demoing, and I think they were there was a really like I know that like when when me when we make records, it's like these are the ten songs we have, and we're just gonna rush to the studio and record them. Like we've never really like had B sides. Whereas like I know that this record has probably five to eight songs that didn't make it, and and you can tell that it's like a pretty calculated like we want to cut all the fat and just mm-hmm. make this record. Did you have any, I guess, like notes about members of the band other than Claudio or I, I mean, I don't, but. Um, like not really from a musical perspective. I mean, um, the rhythm section both fell victim to chemical dependency and like left the band and the bass player got arrested for robbing a pharmacy. Oh, weird. For, Hills. Um, so I think there's like a pretty dark history there. And then like um, Chris Penny from Dillinger was like their drummer for a bit, which is like interesting. And then like I was talking about one of my best friends who's a big Coheed head, and he was telling me that Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters played on LP4, the record I really didn't like when I was listening to it last night. So I think there's some pretty interesting stuff there as far as like auxiliary studio members and live members especially like on drums but um i don't know i think the bass is pretty good um i don't even really remember his name to be honest yeah it's uh, uh michael todd mike todd yeah. yeah i mean listen like it's been it's been many many years since my fandom has sort of evaporated so i don't go super deep so um, is josh eppard the drummer not in the band anymore he rejoined. Rejoined. But okay. Mike Todd, I believe, is out. Has been out for years now. Okay, because I know that they were doing. Um, I'm not. Sh- I know Josh Eppard was uh, had that side project three. Weird science. Oh no, th- that's his brother. That's Joey. Okay, Eppard. okay, okay. And I believe Josh maybe was in the band early days. Uh-huh. And the members of three, and I learned this all from the Jeremy Bone podcast. But the members of three built and operated the studio that the first three LPs were recorded at, which is interesting because that includes the first Equal Vision big hit and also the Columbia debut. They were both recorded um, with people from three up in, you know, in the Hudson Valley, Catfield zone somewhere. Um, So yeah, that's a, that's an interesting connection. And like, apparently three were like on a major. And I remember like, in the deepest depths of my Coheed fandom, like trying to get into three and it was just like, it's really bad. You know? Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> way more on the prog and like, like, yeah, like yeah, Coheed yeah. like flirts with prog a lot of times, but three right. like definitely went in. On All it. in. Yeah. Yeah. I remember three played a show at this really weird bar in Montreal called bar St. Laurent two. Um, and I remember just being like, I'm not even that big of a Coheed fan to like go see three. I'm not just gonna go see three because I'm a Coheed fan, you know, but um, yeah, that was definitely like a band that would come up in, in the fandom as, as you know, as an adjacent part of the story. And then interesting to know that like not Josh Eppard's brother, but other members of the band operated that studio. And I think they just got a bunch of money from a major and just like put it all into building the studio and then, it's cool to know that like that's where those three Coheed records that I love were made, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When I think about like that kind of like from Coheed to three, it makes me think of like, like between the bear to me has like trio scapes and orbs and some of those other projects. Right. And it's right. like, right. it's probably the 
I mean, not if you're a huge fan, but it's almost like that diminishing returns kind of like, you mm. know, I feel like between the barrier to me, you know, it's, it takes a little bit more patience, I guess, as a way to kind of put it. It's going on its own kind of separate trip. Yeah. There are, it is, there are a lot of side projects. Like Josh Edward, the drummer, has a rap side project called Weird Science that I never really got into. And then like Claudio has a solo project called The Prize Fighter Inferno. That's, pretty hit or miss and i also don't really i haven't really kept up with anything he's put out in years but like the the two releases that came out during my fandom there's some cool kind of like kind of sounds like fruity loops jammy electronica like real like 1.0 beats with him singing on it that are cool and there's a couple of like acoustic songs that are cool and then there's some stuff that even then was like pretty unlistenable to me but yeah like they they have they have their fair share of of adjacent projects probably a few that i don't really know about in the last 15 years but i think on that cruise that they're doing that like soul glow is playing like sheer maggard is playing and a bunch of cool bands are playing a lot of the side projects i believe are playing the cruise as well like i think weird science is playing i think travis the guitarist his side project that is way after my time is playing um so i think yeah it is one of those bands that has like you know this whole sort of like um inner circle of side projects or whatever adjacent projects yeah yeah i don't know you if this is the rabbit hole on. like a product of getting older but i feel like when i hear that they have so many side projects and like that you know coheed has like a, a cruise i feel like i'm like happy that it's been this successful like i don't yeah, know if that's like yeah. a product of just being older and you know well i was thinking about that last night where it's like so i was listening to this record i was like this record sucks um but they've I wouldn't say they've only grown since then, but they've definitely like sort of plateaued at least since then, which is like, I'm, I, there's no way that I'm the only one who fell off, right? Like they must've alienated a bunch of the fan base who maybe liked the earlier material way, way better. So I think it's pretty cool that they're still able to like go into, you know, thousand plus cap rooms and, and have their own crews and like, and keep this really rabid sort of like core fandom despite maybe at least some super fans falling off pretty hard, you know? So good for them that like, they were maybe able to write what they wanted without having to like pander to what they thought the core fan base wanted musically and still be crushing it and like, you know, playing big old rooms and having their own crews. And I'm sure they do like a bunch of crazy festival yeah. slots and shit. And, you know, like they've, they've found their like, kind of like their legacy zone without dropping to like the struggle 300 cap room circuit or like the the nostalgia circuit like oh, we we have to only tour with thrice and you know what i mean like band x like i think they can still sort of go out and do their own thing and have just like a career on their own terms which is good for them i wish that they could have done that while still making records that i liked but go off you know yeah uh do you feel like do you feel like this record or them as a band when you when you liked them do you feel like it influences your songwriting now or influences anything in golfer or does it feel like a separate thing oh it's fully separate i mean i don't write a note of music in golfer i just play bass and sing what they tell me to sing and the music i am writing right now is either like idm drum and bass like electronic music or sort of like 
Discord records, like Unwound, Worship, like, so no, it's definitely not seeping into like anything I've been doing in the last 15 years, to be completely honest with you. But um, that maybe that makes sense because I really stopped being a fan in 2007. So yeah. it would be weird, like 13 years later, I was like, oh, really, really digging deep into second stage for influence, you know, but I'm sure it maybe in, in my bass playing a little bit or, or maybe in the way I write vocal melodies a little bit, like just being that really formative 1.0 influence in my life, you know, and has definitely informed a lot of my taste. Like I'm sure part of the reason why I became obsessed with math rock at 17, 18 years old was, was, was through that lens of, of their foggy angle. You know what I mean? So I think it was definitely like maybe as a music fan or, or as a music listener, probably more informative than I might suspect, but from a creative standpoint, as someone who isn't much of a songwriter and is sort of more coming into like songwriting via electronic music production, there's not too much crossover there. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel though that from the stuff that you seem to kind of talk about, I guess online and then the other suggestions that you gave, like it is a it is a logical extension of where a Coheed fan could have gone. You know, uh, with, you know, even like I feel like getting into like explosions in the sky and, uh, you know, Sigara, uh, that feels like a place that is an angle they could go. You know, right. So, yeah, it was that. And then a lot of like Terra Melosi, TTNG stuff. Like, as far as guitar music goes, that's right where I went like immediately after giving up on, on, on Coheed. So I think both of those genres, even more, I would say, the, the mathy stuff. Is pretty you can there's a pretty direct through line like oh i love the techie stuff on equal vision and then what a hilarious coincidence that six months later i'm like a terramelo super fan like i don't think that's coincidental like no. i think yeah. seeing terramelo's first of three on a fall of troy tour six months after giving up on coheed like there's no there's no coincidence there <laughs> like i think that's a path that i'm not the only one yeah who went who went down you know yeah, and so Golfer released a new record last year. I, I assume during the pandemic, but um, mm-hmm. so right in the right in the heart of it. Yeah, and you did the split recently with Charmer. So you're saying then, with everything you've said about Coheed, that the split with Charmer isn't part of a longer story arc. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the the the. What are the complete opposite of that is is, is, is what that is um yeah i don't know um i started writing lyrics for the first time since i was 16 a couple months ago so maybe i'll start writing some like deep narrative sci-fi concept shit um because it's interesting actually because claudio was talking to jeremy Bohm about how he is very introverted and very shy and very reluctant to open up about his life. So he, that's why he did this whole concept was to like hide behind this sort of story as a way for him to express personal shit that he wasn't comfortable expressing. And I, I feel a similar way with writing lyrics. Like I've just, I don't love putting myself out there and, um, like I, I, I really cringe out at the shit I write a lot of the time and now I'm finally coming to a point where I just don't care anymore um so I'm like for the first time kind of ready to just like put put it all out there so I guess 
instead of just hiding behind a sci-fi narrative for the last 15 years, I've just not done anything. And now I'm just ready to let it all out because I don't really care anymore. But maybe I should have started a concept project to like, you know, yeah thinly disguise all my all my bullshit through but yeah it's either a plight of us bass players or um mm-hmm. it's uh maybe we played bass due to lack of self-confidence oh i i i went like i discussed that with my therapist like that's, <laughs> yeah, this that's is now therapy. very real yeah. that's very real like that's just like a, not to get too deep but that's just like a direct result of like me internalizing my dad telling me that I'll never amount to anything in music and being like, well, apparently I have no talent and bass is the easiest instrument. And so I'm not even going to bother to write songs. I'm just going to be like the side person and like the, you know, like the, 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 the fill in or like, the, you know, bands looking for a bassist and they already have all the music written. And I just sort of come in and do that. And I'm only starting to unlearn that in the last couple of years and be like, Oh no, maybe I do for whatever it's worth have a songwriting voice and, and a lyric writing voice and explore that even if it's just for my own self-satisfaction and right now i'm just writing music that maybe no one will ever hear but like it feels really good and and that's where i'm at you know and maybe it took 10 years 15 years too late to get to that point but i'm here now and i'm i'm living for whatever it is so yeah they they tell me it's uh not like when you get there, it's just important that you get there. I'm not sure yeah. if I completely yeah. believe it um, because I just like when I think about uh, even like Coheed and Cambria, it's like they were pretty they were pretty young when this came out, and this is like a fully fleshed out thing from day one. And it's like I I felt like throughout just all of my journey until this very moment everything has been just one struggle after another. It's like the fact that I've ever toured or anything like it surprises me. Like, it's just like, I don't know. I, I, I don't understand when like 20 year olds seem to have it figured out, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To this yeah. day, I'm like, yeah. And I think that might be a product of like, maybe our internalization of like, not thinking we're good mixed with, our or i'll speak more for myself but like i'm just interested in so much music that it was hard for me to be like i'm gonna just be this and like i'm just gonna like dedicate my life from age 16 to like doing this kind of band like i was like i was djing like drum and bass for a few years and i was like making ambient music and i was playing in a post-rock band i was playing in a pop punk band and i was playing in a math rock band like I, i just like i was just like do all these things that like I wanted to do in that moment. And I think I never really put all my eggs into one basket, which maybe is what Kohi did, which can work great for people, or you can just be stuck in a very one dimensional failure. I guess it's just a gamble. Whereas for me, it was like, I never felt confident enough to take that gamble. So I'm just going to dabble in all these disparate little worlds. Um, and yeah, it it's frustrating for certain reasons but then also I feel like I have invested enough into golfer where it's like at least I've been able to check off a few boxes of like long-term like labels or festivals or or certain things that we've gotten to do that maybe isn't like a full-fledged career but like taking at least one of those like little disparate niche influences or, or or goals and like made it 
into some kind of logical end, you know, and, and so that feels good for whatever it's worth, you know, but yeah, there is something to be said about like, just being like real young and saying, this is it. And this is, this is my concept and this is the angle and we're just going to do this. And kudos to anyone who can pull that off at 20 years old. I guess yeah. we're not those type of people, but yeah. hopefully we've been able to at least realize some teenage young adult aspirations. And- yeah. I mean, I think my like 15 year old self would be very pleased with, you know, where I'm at now. Yeah, so it's that's what's you know, cool about punk and DIY. It's yeah. like, we don't have to be great players. We don't have to sign a major labels and be on buses to like, release on cool labels and like you can tour even if it's you're not really going to like formal touring you can you we're still able to tour and we're still able to maybe like book and play with bands we really like and be friends with people that we really look look up to and and as much as like it would be cool to like be making a living off playing music and playing real big fancy venues all the time all that kind of stuff maybe not everyone's built for that and maybe that's what's really cool about punk doi is like being able to sort of do that kind of stuff just in a different way and in a more low-key kind of way yeah yeah one of the things uh like a couple things i feel like i realized like with with any of my bands i feel like it's like i'm referencing something that was never popular to begin with so it's like how could i almost assume that you know it would be a low ceiling yeah it's like like, yeah it's like oh i like you know, like, I mean, well, a band you'll know. Um, it's like when we started Late Bloomer, a big reference was like Doughboys, you sure. know? And right. so it's like, but that weren't like a big... I mean, if Doughboys <laughs> themselves couldn't get arrested, like how is a Doughboys worth <laughs> Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so there's not... And that's how I feel about, about our band. It's like, well, how can we take this to the next level? It's like, what bands have taken this to the next level? Like even... The TTNGs and the maps and atlases, like they're they all hit, you know, pretty low ceilings, um, and and maybe at 17, 18 years old, you think these people are the kings of the world, but then you you sort of grow up and you're like, there's there's not much further to go with this kind of stuff, you know, and yeah, like even with things like it was there was a tour that was like L ten eleven with like Joan of Arc, and it was that's where bomb yeah it was like at places that I have played. You know, and I was like, oh, man, I wish I was opening this tour. And uh, but it was like, oh, well, I've played all these places. And that's no to no disrespect to those bands that I like. Uh, But it's like, yeah, just to go back to what you're saying, like it is like a lower ceiling than you would have thought as a kid. So if those are your references, it's like, damn, I should have put more eggs in like a whatever basket. Yeah, (laughs) I should have become a. a DJ. Yeah. That's what I think about a lot. Yeah. But then I'm like, I'm not good at like late nights and drugs and people in that world are really weird. But like sometimes when I do have those moments of like, oh, I wish I was living off music. Like that's could have been a path I went down. Like I still to this day, I'm like deep in that world, but not everyone's built for it. And, and this is just, this is maybe just like the world I was built for. And I'm trying to just like take what I can from it and, and maybe be cool with and accepting of the fact that like you can't win or achieve every childhood teenage dream from, from it and just get from it what you can and not beat yourself up over the things you can't get from it, you know? Yeah. And I, I think it's great that we're ending on such an uplifting 
Oh yeah. <laughs> but, but I, but I, I think it's like good though. Um, in a way, like I think if you can kind of look at getting to a place where you're doing personally in like the last year, I feel like I'm like, why do I even play music? And it's like, it's like, Oh, I just like writing songs. And so mm-hmm. it's like, you take everything away. If I could never tour again, then it's like, I will, I would still write songs. Even like you said, if people never hear them, it's like, this is ultimately what I like doing. So if I have to do these other things, like book myself a tour and whatever, when the mood strikes, you know, it's like, it's all at the thing that I just can't stop writing songs, even mm-hmm. if it's not all the time, you know? So it's like trying to find just like why you did it in the first place. Yeah. Which, which like I was saying before, I feel so grateful to be coming into as I enter my thirties, like, okay, maybe I won't be touring or like doing all these things that I want to do in my twenties that maybe I got out of my system in my twenties, but I'm also writing for the first time, basically yeah. ever as an adult. And I can just ride that, forever really and and still feel that satisfaction maybe even more than i did in my 20s um and see where that goes and and if it just goes nowhere beyond me feeling personally satisfied and letting some shit out then i feel really grateful to at least be finding a little bit of a voice and a little bit of confidence and a little bit of just you know not caring about what people think or whatever and it feels good for whatever it's worth. Yeah. And where can people find you online? Um, like on social media? Yeah. My personal so- uh, What Instagram, message boards? Uh, Cobalt and Calcium, <laughs> after, after, AfterThePostRock.com. Um, those were my two back in the day. Shout out to AfterThePostRock.com. Uh, that's where I met Josh from Foxing when we were like children. Um uh, my Insta is David Aaron, but the O in Aaron is uh, the the zero. Oh, okay. A R zero N. Um, David A A Mitchell on Twitter, but I really am way more active on the golfer Twitter these days. Um, yeah, just search golfer on Twitter. That's really where I'm putting all my social media eggs <laughs> these days. Don't really use Instagram. Maybe I'll post like a, a song and my close friend story once in a while um don't really use facebook but don't really use my personal instagram but i'm all over the golf instagram just posting nonsense so if you want a little insight into my psyche hit up the golfer uh twitter sorry the golfer twitter that's that's where the action is for me right now oddly enough well i appreciate you taking the time to talk to me yeah i love the pod and uh i'm really thankful to be here welcome back Thanks to David for coming on the pod. Please check out Golfer and their newest split with Charmer. It's streaming wherever you do that. Okay, next week we're talking with my good friend Mara Weaver of Direct Hit. Well, she also plays in a ton of bands like, well, previously, Mixtapes, and currently The Mimes, Ogie Kubo Station, and The Homeless Gospel Choir. Honestly, maybe even more that I'm forgetting. Well, anywho, we talked about the Liz Fair album Exile in Guyville, and we had a great chat. Like I mentioned, check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. Follow us on social media, at spinningout, and that's on Instagram and Twitter. Please leave a review and recommend us to a friend. Thanks, as always, to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme music. With that said, see you next week. I've